Well, good afternoon. As I said, I'm going to read the psychological commentary for the Tibetan Book of the Dead by Carl Jung. The book is not by Carl Jung. The psychological commentary is by Carl Jung. I thought I would share it because um, I never came across it when I was young in all the 10, 20, 30 years studying. Uh, it wasn't until accidentally coming across uh, a third edition of the Bartholdo duel with the introduction. Uh, and since I'm, I'm just falling in love with Young as a philosopher, as a psychologist, however you want to call it, but neither here nor there, I thought I would share this interesting um, bit of information. I might not be able to share it all at once, um, but I thought I may be able to share with some people. So at the one-minute one mark, here is the psychological commentary by Carl C. Young for the Tibetan Book of the Dead, translation by Ivan Wentz. Uh, and his German was translated by uh, R.F.C. Ho. Before embarking, before embarking upon the psychological commentary, I should like to say a few words about the text itself. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, or the Bardo Thadul, is a book of instruction for the dead and dying. Like the Egyptian Book of the Dead, it is meant to be a guide for the dead man during the period of his bardo existence. Symbolically described as an intermediate state of 49 days duration between death and rebirth. The text falls into three parts. The first part, called Chikei Bardo, describes the psychic happenings at the moment of death. The second part, the Chonid Bardo, deals with the dream state which supervenes immediately after death and with what are called karmic illusions. The third part, the Sitpa Bardo, concerns the onset of the birth instinct and of prenatal events. It is characteristic that supreme insight and illumination and hence, and hence the greatest possibility of attaining liberation are vouchsafed, vouchsafed, wow, that's a new word for me, <laughs> during the actual process of dying. Soon afterwards, the illusions begin, which lead eventually to reincarnation. The illuminative lights growing ever fainter and more multiferous, and the visions more and more terrifying. This descent illustrates the estrangement of consciousness from the liberating truth as it approaches nearer and nearer to physical rebirth. The purpose of the instruction is to fix the intention of the dead man at each successive stage of delusion and entanglement. The purpose of the instruction is to fix the attention of the dead man at each successive stage of delusion and entanglement on the ever-present possibility of liberation and to explain to him the nature of his visions. The text of the Bardo is Bardo Thadul is recited by the Lama in the presence of the deceased. I do not think I could better discharge my debt of thanks to the two previous translators of the Bardo Thadul, the late Lama Kazi Dawa Sandup and Dr. Ivan Wentz. Then in tempting with the aid of a psychological commentary to make the magnificent world of ideas and problems contained in this treatise a little more intelligible to the Western mind. I am sure that all who read this book with open eyes and who allow it to impress itself upon them without prejudice will reap a rich reward. The Bartholdule, fitly named by its editor, Ivan Wentz, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, caused a considerable stir in English-speaking countries at the time of its first appearance in 1927. 
It belongs to that class of writings which are not only of interest to specialists in Mahayana Buddhism, but which also, because of their deep humanity and their still deeper insight into the secrets of the human psyche, make an especial appeal to the layman who is seeking to broaden his knowledge of life. For years, ever since it was first published, the Bartle Thedul has been my constant companion, and to it I owe not only many stimulating ideas and discoveries, but also many fundamental insights. Unlike the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which always prompts one to say too much or too little, the Bardo Thedul offers one an intelligible philosophy addressed to human beings rather than to gods or primitive savages. Its philosophy can't, contains the quintessence of Buddhist psychological criticism. And as such, one can truly say that it is of an unexampled superiority. Not only the wrathful, but also the peaceful deities are conceived as samsaric projections of the human psyche in an idea that seems all too obvious to the enlightened European, because it reminds him of his own banal simplifications. But though the European can easily explain these deities as projections, he would be quite incapable of positing them at the same time as real. The Bartle Thedul can do that because in certain of its most essential metaphysical premises, it has the enlightened as well as the unenlightened European at a disadvantage. The ever-present unspoken assumption of the Bartle Thedul is the antinomial character of all metaphysical assertions, assertions, and also the idea of qualitative difference of the various levels of consciousness and of the metaphysical realities conditioned by them. The background of this unusual book is not the niggardly European either-or, but a magnificently affirmative both-and this statement may appear objectionable to the Western philosopher, for the West loves clarity and unambiguity. Consequently, one philosopher clings to the position God is, whilst another clings equally, equally fervently to the negation God is not. What would these hostile brethren make of an assertion like the following? Recognizing the voidness of thine own intellect is to be Buddhahood, and knowing it at the same time to be thine own consciousness, thou shalt abide in the state of the divine mind of the Buddha. Such an assertion is, I fear, as unwelcome to our Western philosophy as it is to our theology. The Bhagavad Duel is, in the highest degree, psychological in its outlook. But with us, psychology and theology are still in the medieval, pre-psychological stage where only the assertions are listened to, explained, defended, criticized, and disputed, while the authority that makes them has, by general consent, been deposed as outside the scope of discussion. Metaphysical assertions, however, are statements of the psyche and are therefore psychological. To the Western mind, which compensates its well-known feelings of resentment by a slavish regard for rational explanations, this obvious truth seems all too obvious, or else it is seen as an inimmiscible negation of metaphysical truth. Whenever the Westerner hears the word psychological, it always sounds to him like only psychological. For him, the soul is something pitifully small, unworthy, personal, subjective, and a lot more besides. He therefore prefers to use the word mind 
instead, though he likes to pretend at the same time that a statement which may in fact be very subjective indeed is made by the mind, naturally by the universal mind, or even at a pinch by the absolute itself. This rather ridiculous presumption is probably a compensation for the regrettable smallness of the soul. It almost seems as if Anatoly, France, had uttered a truth which were valid for the whole Western world when, in his Penguin Island, Catherine d'Alexandrie offers this advice to God. Donnez-leur une amée, mais une petite. Give them a soul, but a little one. Yeah, so, donnez-leur une aime, mais une petite. Right? But make it a small one. Give them a soul, but make it a small one. It is the soul which, by the divine creative power inherent in it, which makes the metaphysical assertion. It posits the distinctions between metaphysical entities. Not only is it the condition of all metaphysical reality, it is that reality. With this great psychological truth, the Bartle duel opens. The book is not a ceremonial burial, but a set of instructions for the dead, a guide through the changing phenomena of the Bartle realm, that state of existence which continues for 49 days until after death, 49 days after death, until the next incarnation. If we disregard for the moment the supra-temporality of the soul, which the East accepts as self-evident fact, we as readers of the Bartle Duel shall be able to put ourselves without difficulty in the position of the dead man and shall consider attentively the teaching set forth in the opening section which is outlined in the quotation above. At this point, the following words are spoken, not presumptuously, but as a courteous manner. Oh, nobly born, so-and-so, listen. Now thou art experiencing the radiance of the clear light of pure reality. Recognize it. Oh, nobly born, thy present intellect in real nature void, not formed into anything as regards characteristics or color, naturally void, is the very reality, the all good. Thine own intellect, which is now voidness, yet not to be regarded as the voidness of nothing, but as being the intellect itself, unobstructive, shining, thrilling, and blissful, is the very consciousness, the all good Buddha. This realization is the Dharmakaya state of perfect enlightenment, or, as we should express it in our own language, the creative ground for all metaphysical assertion is consciousness. As the invisible, intangible manifestation of the soul, the voidness is the state transcendent over all assertion and all prediction. The fullness of its discriminative manifestations still lies latent in the soul. The text continues, Thine own consciousness, shining, void, and inseparable from the great body of radiance, hath no birth, no death, and is the immutable light, Buddha Amitabha. The soul, or, as here, one's own consciousness, is assuredly not small, but the radiant Godhead itself. The West finds this statement either very dangerous or not downright blasphemous, if not downright blasphemous, or else it accepts it unthinkingly and then suffers from a theological, a theosophical, pardon me, a theosophical inflation. Somehow we always have a wrong attitude to these things. But if we can master ourselves far enough to refrain from our chief error of always wanting to do something with things and put them to practical use, we may perhaps succeed in learning an important lesson from these teachings, or at least 
in appreciating the greatness of the Bardolf the Duel, which vouchsafes to the dead man the ultimate and highest truth, that even the gods are the radiance and reflection of our own souls. No sun is thereby eclipsed for the Oriental as it would be for the Christian, who should feel robbed of his God on the contrary. His soul is the light of the Godhead, and the Godhead is the soul. The East can sustain this paradox better than the unfortunate Anglus Silesius, who even today would be psychologically far in advance of his time. It is highly sensible of the Bardothodule to make clear to the dead man the primacy of the soul. For that is the one thing which life does not make clear to us. We are so hemmed in by things which jostle and oppress that we never get a chance in the midst of all these given things to wonder by whom they are given. It is from this world of given things that the dead man liberates himself. And the purpose of the instruction is to help him towards this liberation. We, if we put ourselves in his place, shall derive no lesser reward from it, since we learn from the very first paragraphs that the giver of all given things dwells within us. So the giver of all given dwells with us, within us. This is a truth. Mm. This is a truth which, in the face of all evidence, is the greatest things, as in the smallest, is never known. Although it is often so very necessary, indeed vital, for us to know it. Such knowledge, to be sure, is suitable only for contemplatives who are minded to understand the purpose of existence. For those who are Gnostics by temperament and therefore believe in a Savior who, like the Savior of the Mundaeans, calls himself Gnosis of Life, Manda Daji, the Haji. Perhaps it is not granted to many of us to see the world as something given, a great reversal of standpoint calling for such sacrifice, is needed before we can see the world as given by the very nature of the soul. It is so much more straightforward, more dramatic, impressive, and therefore more convincing to see that all things happen to me than to observe how I make them happen. Indeed, the animal nature of man makes him resist seeing himself as the maker of his circumstances. This is why attempts of this kind were always the object of secret initiations, culminating as a, role, as a rule in a figurative death which symbolized the total character of this reversal. And in point of fact, the instruction given in the Bartothodul serves to recall to the dead man the experiences of his initiation and the teachings of his guru. For the instruction is, at bottom, nothing less than an initiation of the dead into the bardo life, just as the initiation of the living was a preparation for the beyond. Such was the case, at least, with all the mystery cults in ancient civilizations from the time of the Egyptians and the Luzinian mysteries. In the initiation of the living, however, this beyond is not a world beyond death, but a reversal of the mind's intentions and outlook. A psychological beyond, or in Christian terms, a redemption from the trammels of the world and sin. Redemption is a separation and a deliverance from an earlier condition of darkness and unconsciousness. And this leads to a condition of illumination and releasedness, to victory and transcendence over everything given. Thus far, the Bartothodule is, as Dr. Evan Wentz also feels, an initiation process whose purpose it is to restore to the soul 
the divinity it lost at birth. Now, it is a characteristic of Oriental religious literature that the teaching invariably begins with the most important item, with the ultimate and highest principles, which with us would come last, as for instance in Epileus, where Lucius is worshipped as Helios only right at the end. Accordingly, in the Bartothedul, the initiation is a series of diminishing climaxes, ending with rebirth in the womb. The only initiation process that is still alive in practice today in the West is the analysis of the unconscious, as used by doctors for therapeutic purposes. This penetration into the ground layers of consciousness is a kind of rational meiotics in the Socratic sense, a bringing forth of psychic contents that are still germinal, subliminal, and as yet unborn. Originally, this therapy took the form of Freudian psychoanalysis and was mainly concerned with sexual fantasies. This is the realm that corresponds to the last and lowest region of the Bardos. Known as the Siddha Bardo, where the dead man, unable to profit by the teachings of the Chikai and the Chonyid, begins to fall a prey to sexual fantasies and is attracted by the vision of mating couples. Eventually, he is caught by a womb and born into the earthly world again. Meanwhile, as one would expect, the, the Oedipus complex starts functioning. In his karma, if his karma destines him to be reborn as a man, he will fall in love with his mother-to-be and will find his father hateful and disgusting. Conversely, the future daughter will be highly attracted by her father-to-be and repelled by her mother. The European passes through this specifically Freudian domain when his unconscious contents are brought to light under analysis. But he goes in the reverse direction. He journeys back through the world of infantile sexual fantasy to the womb. It has even been suggested in the psychoanalytical circles, in psychoanalytical circles, that the trauma par excellence is the birth experience itself. Nay more, the psychoanalysts even claim to have probed back to the memories of intrauterine origin. Here, Western region reaches its limit, unfortunately. I say unfortunately because one rather wishes that Freudian psychoanalysis could have happily pursued these so-called intrauterine experiences still further back. Had it succeeded in this bold undertaking, it would surely have come out beyond the Sipa Bardo, and penetrated from behind into the lower reaches of the Chonyid Bardo. It is true that with the equipment of our existing biological ideas, such a venture would not have been crowned a success. It would have needed a wholly different kind of philosophical preparation from that based on current scientific assumptions. But had the journey back been consistently pursued, it would undoubtedly have led to the postulate of a pre-uterine existence, a true bardo life, if only it had been possible to find at least some trace of an experiencing subject. As it was, the psychoanalysis, the psychoanalysts never got beyond purely conjectural traces of intrauterine experiences, and even the famous birth trauma has remained such an obvious truism that it can no longer explain anything any more than can the hypothesis that life is a disease with a bad prognosis because its outcome is always fatal. Freudian psychoanalysis in all essential aspects, never went beyond the experiences of the Siddha Bardo. That is, it was unable to extricate itself from sexual fantasies and similar 
incompatible tendencies, which cause anxiety and other affective states. Nevertheless, Freud's theory is the first attempt made by the West to investigate, as if from below, from the animal sphere of instinct, the psychic territory that corresponds in tantric Lamaism to the Sidpa Bardo. A very justifiable fear of metaphysics prevented Freud from penetrating into the sphere of the occult. In addition to this, the Sidpa state, if we are to accept the psychology of the Sidpa Bardo, is characterized by the fierce wind of karma, which whirls the dead man along until he becomes until he comes to the womb door. In other words, the Sidpa state permits of no going back because it is sealed off against the Chunyid state by an intense striving downwards towards the animal sphere of instinct and physical rebirth. That is to say, anyone who penetrates into the unconscious with purely biological assumptions will become stuck in the instinctual sphere and be unable to advance beyond it, for he will be pulled back again and again into physical existence. It is therefore not possible for Freudian theory to reach anything except an essentially negative valuation of the unconscious. It is a nothing but at the same time, it must be admitted that this view of the psyche is typically Western. Only it is expressed more blatantly, more plainly, and more ruthlessly than others would have dared to express it. Though at the bottom, they think no differently. As to what mind means in this connection, we can only cherish the hope that it will carry conviction. But he's but as even Max Scherler noted with regret, the power of this mind is, to say the least of it, doubtful. I think, then, we can state as fact, with the aid of psychoanalysis, the rationalizing mind of the West has pushed forward into what one might call the neuroticism of the Sidpa state. And has there been brought to an inevitable standstill by the uncritical assumption that everything psychological is subjective and personal? Even so, this advance has been a great gain inasmuch as it has enabled us to take one more step behind our conscious lives. This knowledge also gives us a hint of how we ought to read the Bartle the duel, that is, backwards. If, with the help of our Western science, we have to some extent succeeded in understanding the psychological character of the Sidba Bardo, our next task is to see if we can make anything of the preceding Chunyid Bardo. The Chunyid state is one of karmic illusion, that is to say, illusions which result from the psychic residua of previous experiences. According to the Eastern view, karma implies a sort of psychic theory of heredity based on the hypothesis of reincarnation, which in the last resort is a hypothesis, is an hypothesis of reincarnation, which in the last resort is an is an hypothesis of the supra-temporality of the soul. Neither our scientific knowledge nor our reason can keep in step with this idea. There are too many ifs and buts. Above all, we know desperately little about the possibilities of continued existence of the individual soul after death. So, so little that we cannot even conceive how anyone could prove anything at all in this respect. Moreover, we know only too well, on epistemological grounds, that such a proof would be just as impossible as the proof of God. Hence, 
we may cautiously accept the idea of karma only if we understand it as psychic heredity in the very widest sense of the word. Psychic heredity does exist. That is to say, there is inheritance of psychic characteristics such as predisposition to disease, traits of character, special gifts, and so forth. It has no violence to the psyche. Uh, sorry, it has. It does no violence to the psychic nature of these complex facts if natural science reduces them to what appear to be physical aspects, nuclear structures and cells and so on. They are essentially phenomena of life which express themselves in the main psychically, just as there are other inherent characteristics which express themselves in the main physiologically, on the physical level. Among these inherited psychic factors, there is a special class which is not confined either to family or to race. These are the universal dispositions of the mind, and they are to be understood as analogous to Plato's forms. Idola. In accordance with which the mind organizes its con content, one could also describe these forms as categories, analogous to the logical categories, which are always and everywhere present as the basic postulates of reason. Only in the case of our forms, we are not dealing with categories of reason, but with categories of imagination. As the products of imagination are always, in essence, visual, their forms must, from the outset, have the character of images and, moreover, of typical images, which is why, following St. Augustine, I call them archetypes. Comparative religion and mythology are rich minds of archetypes, and so the psychology of dreams and psychosis. The astonishing parallelism between these images and the idea they serve to express has frequently given rise to the wildest migration theories, although it would have been far more natural to think of the remarkable similarity of the human psyche at all times and in all planes. Archetypal fantasy forms are, in fact, reproduced spontaneously, anytime and anywhere, without there being any conceivable trace of direct transmission. The original structural components of the psyche are of no less surprising a uniformity than are those of the visible body. The archetypes are, so to speak, organs of the pre-rational psyche. There are eternally inherited forms and ideas which have at first no specific content. Their specific content only appears in the course of the individual's life when personal experience is taken up in precisely these forms. If the archetypes were not pre-existent in the identical form elsewhere, how could one explain the fact, postulated at almost every turn by the Bardo Tadul, that the dead do not know that they are dead and that this assertion is to be met with just as often in the dreary half-baked literature of European and American spiritualism, although we find the same assertion in Swedenborg, knowledge of his writings can hardly be sufficiently widespread for this little bit of information to have been picked up by every small-town medium, and a connection between Swedenborg and the Barthodul is completely unthinkable. It is a primordial, universal idea that the dead simply continue their earthly existence and do not know that they are disembodied spirits. An archetypal idea which enters into immediate, visible manifestation whenever anyone sees a ghost. It is significant, too, that ghosts all over the world have certain features in common. I am naturally aware of the unverifiable spiritualistic hypothesis, though I have no wish to make it my own. I must content myself with the hypothesis of an omnipresent but 
differentiated psychic structure, which is inherited and which necessarily gives a certain form and direction to all experience. For just as the organs of the body are not mere lumps of indifferent passive matter, but are dynamic functional complexes, which assert themselves with imperious urgency. So as also the archetypes, as organs of the psyche, are dynamic, instinctual complexes, which determine psychic life to an extraordinary degree. That is why I also call them dominance of the unconscious, the layer of unconscious psyche, which is made up of these universal dynamic forms I have termed the collective unconscious. So far as I know, there is no inheritance of the individual prenatal or preuterine memories, but there are undoubtedly inherited archetypes, which are, however, devoid of content because, to begin with, they contain no personal experiences. They only emerge into consciousness when personal experiences have rendered them visible. As we have seen, Siddha psychology consists in wanting to live and be born. The Siddha bardo is the bardo of seeking rebirth. Such a state, therefore, precludes any experience of trans-subject psychic realities, unless the individual refuses categorically to be born back again into the world of consciousness. According to the teachings of the Bardo Thadul, it is still possible for him in each of these Bardo states to reach the Dharmakaya by transcending the four-faced Mount Meru, providing that he does not yield to his desire to follow the dim lights. This as much as to say that the dead man must desperately resist the dictates of reason as we understand it and give up the supremacy of egohood regarded by reason as sacrosanct. What this means in practice is complete capitulation to the objective powers of the psyche. With all this, all of this, all that this entails, a kind of symbolical death, uh, corresponding to the judgment of the dead in the Siddha Bardo. It means the end of all consciousness, rational morally responsible conduct of life, and a voluntary surrender to what the Bardo Thudul calls karmic illusion. Karmic illusion springs from belief in a visionary world of an extremely irrational nature, which neither accords with nor derives from a rational, from our rational judgments, but is the exclusive product of uninhibited imagination. It is sheer dream or fantasy, and every well-meaning person will instantly caution us against it. Nor indeed can one see at first sight what is the difference between fantasies of this kind and the phantasmagoria of a lunatic. Very often only a slight abaisement de niveau mental is needed to unleash this world of illusion. So um, an abatement of uh, uh, the, the mental um, flow, right? So uh, to cease this, uh, this string of thoughts. The terror and darkness of this moment has its equivalent in the experiences described in the opening sections of the Siddha Bardo. But the contents of this bardo also reveal the archetypes, the karmic images which appear first in their terrifying form. The chonid state is equivalent to a desperately induced psychosis. One often hears and reads about the dangers of yoga, particularly of the ill-reputed kundalini yoga. The deliberately induced psychotic state, which in certain unstable individuals might easily lead to a real psychosis, is a danger that needs to be taken very seriously indeed. These things really are dangerous and ought not to be meddled with in our typically Western way. It is a meddling with fate 
which strikes at the very roots of human existence and can, and can let loose a flood of sufferings of which no sane person ever dreamed. These sufferings correspond to the hellish torments of the Chunyid state described in the text as follows. Then the Lord of Death will place round thy neck a rope and drag thee along. He will cut off thy head, tear out thy heart, pull out thy intestines, lick up thy brain, drink thy blood, eat thy flesh, and gnaw thy bones. But thou wilt be incapable of dying. Even when thy body is hacked to pieces, it will revive again. The repeated hacking will cause intense pain and torture. These tortures aptly describe the real nature of the danger. It is a disintegration of the wholeness of the Bardo body, which is a kind of subtle body constitu constituting, constituting the visual envelope of the psychic self in the after-death state. The psychological equivalent of this dismemberment is psychic disassociation. In its deleterious deleterious form, it would be schizophrenia, split mind. This most common of all mental illnesses consists essentially in a marked abaissement du niveau mental, which abolishes the normal checks imposed by the conscious mind and thus gives unlimited scope to the play of the unconscious dominance. The transition then from the Siddha state to the Chunyid state is a dangerous reversal of the aims and intentions of the conscious mind. It is a sacrifice of the ego's stability and a surrender to the extreme uncertainty of what must seem like a chaotic riot of phantasmal forms. When Freud coined the phrase that the ego was the true seat of anxiety, he was giving voice to a true, to a very true and profound intuition. Fear of self-sacrifice lurks deep in every ego, and this fear is often only the precariously controlled demand of the unconscious forces to burst out in full strength. No one who strives for selfhood, individuation, is spared this dangerous passage, for that which is feared also belongs to the wholeness of the self, the subhuman or superhuman world of psychic dominance from which the ego originally emancipated itself with enormous effort and then only partially for the sake of a more or less illusory freedom. This liberation is certainly a very necessary and very heroic undertaking, but it represents nothing final. It is merely the creation of a subject who, in order to find fulfillment, has still to be confronted by an object. This at first sight, would appear to be the world, which is swelled out with projections for that very purpose. Here we seek and find our difficulties. Here we seek and find our enemy. Here we seek and find what is dear and precious to us. And it is comforting to know that all evil and all good is to be found out there, in the visible object, where it can be conquered, punished, destroyed, or enjoyed. But nature herself does not allow this paradisal state of innocence to continue forever. There are, and always have been, those who cannot help but to see that the world and its experiences are in the nature of a symbol and that it really reflects something that lies hidden in this subject himself in his own trans-subjective reality. It is from this profound intuition, according to Lamist doctrine, that the Chunyid state derives its true meaning, which is why the Chunyid bardo is entitled the bardo of the experiencing of reality. The reality experienced in the Chunyid state is as the last section of the corresponding bardo teaches, the reality of thought. 
The thought forms appear as realities. Fantasy takes on real form. And the terrifying dream evoked by karma and played out by the unconscious dominance begins. The first to appear, if we read the text backwards, is the all-destroying god of death, the epitome of all terrors. He is followed by the 28 power-holding and sinister goddesses and the 58 blood-drinking goddesses. In spite of their demonic aspect, which appears as a confusing chaos of terrifying attributes and monstrosities, a certain order is already discernible. We find that there are companies of gods and goddesses who are arranged according to the four directions and are distinguished by typical mystic colors. It gradually becomes clear that all these deities are organized into mandalas, or circles, containing a cross of the four colors. The colors are coordinated with the four aspects of wisdom. White, the light path of the mirror-like wisdom. Yellow, the light path of wisdom equality. Red, the light path of discriminative wisdom. And green, the light path of the all-performing wisdom. On the higher level of insight, the dead man knows that the real thought forms all emanate from himself and that the four light paths of wisdom which appear before him are the radiations of his own psychic faculties. This takes us straight to the psychology of the Lamestic Mandala, which I have already discussed in the book I brought out with the late Richard Wilhelm, The Secret of the Golden Flower. Ooh, I did a review of that. Continuing our ascent backwards through the region of the Chonyidbardo, we come finally to the vision of the four great ones, the green Amoga Siddhi, the red Amitabha, the yellow Ratna Samhava, and the white Vajrasattva. The ascent, ascent ends with the effulgent blue light of the Dharmadhatu, the Buddha body, which glows in the midst of the mandala from the heart of Varakana. With this final vision, the karmic illusions cease. Consciousness weaned away from all the forms and from all the attachment to objects returns to the timeless, inchoate state of the Dharmakaya. Thus, reading backwards, the Chahai state, which appeared at the moment of death, is reached. I think these few hints will suffice to give the attentive reader some idea of the psychology of the Barlothadul. The book describes a way of initiation in reverse, which, unlike uh, the eschatological expectations of Christianity, prepares the soul for a descent into physical being. The thoroughly intellectualistic and rationalistic worldly-mindedness of the European makes it advisable for us to reverse the sequence of the Barothadul and to regard it as an account of Eastern initiation experiences. Though one is perfectly free if one chooses to substitute Christian symbols for the gods of the Chonyidbardo. At any rate, the sequence of events, as I have described, uh, it offers a close parallel to the phenomenology of the European unconscious when it is undergoing an initiation process. That is to say, when it is being analyzed. The transformation of the unconscious that occurs under analysis makes it the natural analog of the religious initiation ceremonies, uh, which do, however, differ in principle from the natural process in that they forestall the natural course of development and substitute for the spontaneous production of symbols, a deliberately selected set of symbols prescribed by tradition. We can see this in the exorcitia 
of Ignatius Loyola or in the yoga meditations of the Buddhists and the Tantrists. The reversal of the order of the chapters, which I have suggested here as an aid to understanding, in no way accords with the original tension of the Bhagavad duel, nor is the psychological use we make of it anything but a secondary intention, though one that is possibly sanctioned by Lamist tradition. The real purpose of this singular book is to attempt which must seem very strange to the educated European of the 20th century, to enlighten the dead on their journey through the regions of the Bardo. The Catholic Church is the only place in the world of the white man where any provision is made for the souls of the departed. Inside the Protestant camp, with its world-affirming optimism, we only find a few mediumistic rescue circles, whose main concern is to make the dead aware of the fact that they are dead. But generally speaking, we have nothing in the West that is any way comparable to the Bartholdul, except for certain secret writings which are inaccessible to the wider public and to the ordinary scientists. According to tradition, the Bartholdul too seems to have been included among the hidden books as Dr. Ivan Wentz uh, makes clear in his introduction. As such, it forms a special character in the magical cure of the soul, which extends even beyond death. This cult of the dead is rationally based on the belief in the super in the, the belief in the supratemporality of the soul. But its irrational basis is to be found in the psychological need of the living to do something for the departed. This is an elementary need which forces itself upon even the most enlightened individuals when faced by the death of relatives and friends. That is why enlightenment or no enlightenment, we still have all manner of ceremonies for the dead. If Lenin had to submit to being embalmed and put on show in a sumptuous mausoleum like an Egyptian pharaoh, we may be quite sure it was not because his followers believed in the resurrection of the body. Apart, however, from the masses said for the soul in the Catholic Church, the provisions we make for the dead are rudimentary and on the lowest level not because we cannot convince ourselves of the soul's immortality, but because we have rationalized the above-mentioned above psychological need out of existence. We behave as if we did not have this need, and because we cannot believe in a life after death, we prefer to do nothing about it. Simpler-minded people follow their own feelings, and as in Italy build themselves funeral monuments of gruesome beauty. The Catholic masses for the soul are on a level considerably above this because they are expressly intended for the psychic welfare of the deceased and are not a mere gratification of lacrimose sentiments. But the highest application of spiritual effort on behalf of the departed is surely to be found in the instructions of the Bartholdul. They are so detailed and thoroughly adapted to the apparent changes in the dead man's condition that every serious-minded reader must ask themselves whether these wise old lamas might not, after all, have caught a glimpse of the fourth dimension and twitched the veil from the greatest of life's secrets. If the truth is always doomed to be a disappointment, one almost feels tempted to concede at least that much reality to the vision of life in the Bardo. At any rate, it is unexpectedly original, if nothing else, to find the after-death state of which our religious imagination has formed the most grandiose conceptions 
painted in lurid colors as a terrifying dream state of a progressively degenerative character. The supreme vision comes not at the end of the bardo, but right at the beginning. In the moment of death, what happens afterwards is an ever-deepening descent into illusion and obscuration. Down to the ultimate degradation of the new physical birth. The spiritual climax is reached at the moment when life ends. Human life, therefore, is the vehicle of the highest perfection it is possible to attain. It alone generates the karma that makes it possible for the dead man to abide in the perpetual light of the voidness without clinging to any object, and thus to rest on the hub of the wheel of rebirth, freed from all illusion of genesis and decay. Life in the bardo brings no eternal rewards or punishments, but merely a descent into a new life which shall bear the individual nearer to his final goal. But this eschatological goal is what he himself brings to birth as the last and highest fruit of the labors and aspirations of earthly existence. This view is not only lofty, it is manly and heroic. The degenerative character of Bardo life is corroborated by the spiritualistic literature of the West, which again and again gives one a sickening impression of the utter inanity and banality of communications from the spirit world. The scientific mind does not hesitate to explain these reports as emanations from the unconscious of the mediums and of those taking part in the seance, and even to extend this explanation to the description of the hereafter given in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And it is uh, an undeniable fact that the whole book is created out of the archetypal, archetypal contents of the unconscious. Behind these lie, there lie, and in this our Western reason is quite right, no physical or metaphysical realities, but merely the reality of psychic facts, the data of psychic experience. Now, whether a thing is given, subjectively or objectively, the fact remains that it is, it is. The Bardo Thadul says no more than this, for its five Jani Buddhas are themselves no more than psychic data. That is just what the dead man has to recognize. If it has not already become clear to him during life that his own psychic self and the giver of all data are one and the same. The world of gods and spirits is truly nothing but the collective unconscious inside me. To turn this sentence round so that it reads, the collective unconscious is the world of gods and spirits outside me. No intellectual acrobatics are needed, but a whole human lifetime, perhaps even many lifetimes, of increasing completeness. Notice that I do not say of increasing perfection, because those who are perfect make another kind of discovery altogether. The Bardo Thadul being began by being a closed book, and so it has remained, no matter what kind of commentaries may be written upon it, for it is a book that will only open itself to spiritual understanding. And this is a capacity which no man is born with, but which he can only acquire through special training and special experience. It is good that such to all intents and purposes, useless books exist. They are meant for those 
the queer folk, who no longer set much store by the uses, aims, and meaning of present-day civilization. And thus ends the introduction to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Barthadul by uh, Carl Gustav Jung. Uh, I thought he did an excellent job. There's a number of forwards in this particular translation. Again, the third edition of the Tibetan Book of the Dead by uh, uh, Ivan Mintz. So on that, I thank you.